Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello there, friends and colleagues. Welcome back to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Dr. Casey Grover here, and I am very excited for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about two topics with one of my colleagues. First, we're going to talk about here in the United States, working with substance use patients who do not speak English as their first language or do not speak English at all. And second, we're going to talk about how to build trust with substance use patients in general. So with that, Araceli is one of the substance use navigators at my hospital. We're going to be talking to her today about these two topics. And a little heads up, we had a few times where Araceli's audio broke up a little bit, but overall the interview is awesome. So let's dig in. Araceli, I'm so glad you're able to join us today. Please tell us who you are and, and what you do. Thank you, Dr. Grover, for inviting me. Um, in speaking of substance use services in the community of CHOMP. Um, hi, um, my name is Araceli. Um, hablo español. A little bit about myself. I'm a daughter of a, a two immigrant parents who settled in Seaside in the 80s. Um, searching for a better future for their families. I have three kids and one cat. I'm a certified and drug and alcohol counselor. I worked for Encompass in the past um, for about eight years. Then I went to work for Janice of Santa Cruz for about a year, stationed in Salud para la Gente and um, Placita Medical Clinic. Uh, particular, I work in the Watsonville community. Um, I joined CHOMP, I believe, in 2019 as a substance use navigator for the emergency department. I have been there for about five years, I want to say, a combination of 14 years of experience. I'm currently working on uh, my um, bachelor's degree in psychology with Columbia University. Going back to your question, um, primary my primary focus in the ER is assisting patients navigating emergency services for substance use disorder. For example, like increasing awareness of um, substance use, like medication options for substance use disorder. Um, also, I connect patients to services in the community, offering them support and guidance, moving them through stages of change from contemplating to action phase. Um, not every of our patients are ready to enter treatment. Some of them just want like services or some of them just want to talk about um, or explore if they have like any uh, particular problem or substances. Um, but we, we meet them where they are and we use motivational interviewing just to kind of like get a feel for what where they are with, um, you know, stages of change. But um, that's a little bit about me. How did you get into the substance use treatment world? I mean, did 
was it, I'm curious what, what, what drew you into seeking it as a career? So uh, we all have uh, people in recovery in our family. And I come from a family with, uh, with family members struggling with uh, substance use. And uh, like they, there's a saying in Spanish that they say, cuando te llueven limones, aprende a hacer limonada. So mm-hmm. meaning that if it rains lemon, learn how to, to eliminate, right? So like right. use your experience and do something with it to help people. Actually, I think for all the years we've worked together, I, I think that's the first time I've ever asked you what, what brought you into mm-hmm. seeking substance use as a career or excuse me, substance use treatment as a career. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about your work that you do with patients with substance use whose English, excuse me, who do not have English as their primary language or English as a, as a secondary language and they have some limited fluency. So beyond just being, excuse me, beyond just struggling to communicate with their healthcare providers, what challenges do patients with substance use who do not speak English face? So there, there's a lot of challenges. Um, one of the biggest ones is the language barrier, particular uh, the monolingual Spanish speakers. They struggle a lot with um, like um, learning or understanding um, the health profession. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed this with our Latino community, um, they often uh, don't know the resources. They know they don't know how to advocate for themselves. Um, and that's where our work comes in, like the substance use navigator, aka Sun. Um, and this is where we sit down with the patient. We explain to them, like, these are your options. This is what you can do. This is offer with your coverage with insurance or Medi-Cal. Um, and so we we really like put it in perspective for them. And um, this is where we are also establish the rapport with the patient, and we inform them of the options, whether they want to enter treatment right now or they want to think about it and enter treatment later on. Do you find that culturally there's specific differences? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you're fluent in English and Spanish. I should have asked, are you fluent in any other languages? Uh, No, just English and Spanish. Um, that's about it. So, so for, we'll say just because, you know, you do speak Spanish and um, what do you notice unique about the Spanish speaking patient? I think you said uh, monolingual, they only speak Spanish. Is there anything unique about them that you find that you can support them in or help them in as you're a Spanish speaker as well? Yeah. So um, having, having that, uh, the speaking their native language goes a long way because you understand like their culture and you understand like their struggles and uh, you can put everything in perspective and you know there's no rush to get into treatment but you can just talk to them about their options and um, I think just establishing that rapport and that communication piece goes a long way and just letting them know that you're there to talk to them or to answer any questions if any questions come up later on. Talk to me about what your experience has been like when patients speak other languages, whether it's Korean or Vietnamese. Um, I'm just curious when you yourself are having to get a translator for a language you don't speak with a patient with substance use. Tell me what that's like for you and how you approach it. So um, that is really humbling for me because Mm -hmm. um, 
it puts everything in perspective. And sometimes like, you know, getting the language line or, you know, just holding that space for the patient is important. And sometimes you don't need to speak the other language. You just need to hold the space, let them know that there's options, information, and then there's services out there. And sometimes just like simple sign language, I'm not like an expert in sign language, but simple sign language uh, goes a long way. And they're so grateful just to to have you in the room with them because sometimes they just come in and they don't know and they don't understand. And so it, it really humbles me and it brings me back to my earlier eight, like times when I didn't speak the language and I I was I felt lost and I could only imagine them like feeling that. So I go in the room with that in mind, like, you know, just seeking to understand them rather than to like know that I have all the answers. Cause I honestly, I don't have all the answers, but I'm there just to kind of help. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you and I connected on a patient in Southern California um, and I worked with her for a few months and finally got her connected to services down there. And I, I don't know exactly which country uh, in Asia her family comes from, but she identified as Asian. And it was interesting, um, you know, she mentioned that there was such stigma around addiction in Asian communities. And she was really grateful that, you know, we kind of were just like, hey, we're, we're just here to help. I, I, it's, I'm, I, I would assume when we're using a translator and working in the ER, we only kind of get to kind of the tip of the iceberg of, of how someone's culture affects their, their substance use, their history when they don't speak either English or Spanish. Um, my Spanish, I, I try. I'm not very good. I think I have four or five primary Spanish-speaking patients in my office. I'm actually seeing one of them on Saturday. She's lovely. She's one of those people who's working so much they can never make it into clinic. Um, and yes, they're so grateful that um, that they can communicate in, in the language that 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 is easiest and most comfortable for them. Um, tell me, when you're working with Spanish-speaking patients, what do they tell you is their biggest challenge when they're trying to get treatment for substance use here in the U.S.? The biggest uh, barrier is um, offering uh, or treatments having uh, Spanish-speaking uh, programs. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the patients do have Medi-Cal and do qualify for a lot of these services, but it's just the language. It's um, It's a barrier, like even getting like just their needs, their needs met, like that's, that's a barrier for them. Understanding like healthcare, how it works. Um, it's not common knowledge uh, to communicate with the primary physician. Like I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. So in the Latino community, there's a belief that, uh, and you're probably going to laugh at, at this, but there's a belief that you only go to the doctor when it's really severe. Mm -hmm. So they do use like the ER mm -hmm. as like primary care, like, um, totally. <laughs> and, yeah, like, so we see a lot of the patients that have never seek care and they show up over there with all these complications, but it's, like I said, it's sometimes it's, it just takes that person to kind of educate them and like, tell them like, yeah, you can go to your primary care physician for this kind of things. Like you don't have to come to the ER, but, um, you know, um, I think uh, information is key and it's important for all our community to learn more about like substance use and, you know, and you can ask your health care provider for all the services. Yeah, it's, I'll never forget. I, I think it was in ER room eight. Um, I don't know how you are, Araceli, but when I have particularly memorable cases, I always remember the room I was in. Yes. 
Um, and I was in room eight and there was an, uh, probably maybe about 65, mid sixties, uh, Latino gentleman. And he'd never seen a doctor before in his whole life. And I was the first doctor he'd ever seen. And I was yeah. like, wow, I can cry. I was like, tell him like, I'm so honored that I'm the first doctor you've ever seen. So yeah, yeah. we definitely see that phenomenon. Um, tell me, do you find that when you are asked to see somebody who is primary English speaking, versus primary Spanish speaking, do you find that they have different understandings about substance use or expectations about what treatment involves? And how do you incorporate that into when you're trying to help them get connected to services and treatment? Yes, uh, um, definitely. We uh, we see a lot of uh, differences between both of the patients uh, or the communities. Um, patients with certain cultures may be able to connect better with a navigator of the same culture. Mm. Um, however, it all depends on like the factors like culture, education, background, upbringing, like all these factors out and to how patients will respond to like treatments or interventions. Um, but like I said, I always go into the room like seeking to understand the patient rather than like I have all the answers because like I said I I don't and sometimes I have to reach out to my colleagues for support like uh you know we are we're a team so yeah it's it's really important to know that um the patient is the expert in their lives and like we're just there um to kind of help them navigate through services yeah, let, let, let's kind of expand that a little bit. I love what you said. I just want to get to know the patient and understand them. I think that's so important. Um, so following that, how do you adjust the work that you do to a person's culture and heritage? Uh, for example, again, this I remember the room I was in, room 17. Um, I took care of a young man of Latino descent several years ago who talked about in his family and culture they never spoke about anxiety and beer was considered kind of a freebie. He's like, beer's not bad. That's what my family taught me. And so he felt that drinking beer to calm his anxiety is what his family would be most likely to accept. So talk to me about how you kind of, as you get to know and understand that person, how you incorporate that into how you help them get services. So I think it goes back to culture norms in the Latino community, as you know, um, alcohol is everywhere. Like baby showers, yeah. weddings, parties, celebrations in general. So alcohol is not seen like as a bad thing. It's more like a social thing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people associate like alcohol being okay. Um, but like keeping that in mind, I often go into the room and I ask them like, so why do you drink? Or what? how does drinking help you? And mm -hmm. so like when, when they answer that, like I understand the purpose of the drinking maybe they they'll say like oh well it helps me sleep or uh, it helps me with my anxiety or I'm depressed and that's why I drink um and then I'm like oh okay and then I use that opportunity to kind of educate them on like the alcohol and marijuana and the long-term effects of you know causes anxiety and depression like yeah, you think it's helping, but in reality, it's it's not. It's mm. doing the opposite. Right. So some some of the patients are not aware of that. And they think, oh, it's helping me, but in reality, long term, it's really not. Yeah, I've been at. I was. I think I had. Was it three high schools last week talking? And kind of the best way I can describe substance use to young people is, if it if it were helpful in the short term and the long term, we call those medicines. If it's right. helpful in the short term, but harmful in the long term, we usually view those as and uh, of kind of substances that can be um, misused. So uh, yeah, I, I love that question. And this actually came up um, my last 
not maybe not my last. I, like I said, I went to bed at 3 a.m. I'm a little off this morning. <laughs> um, couple a couple of podcast episodes ago was on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, mm-hmm. and what do patients who get told they have it? What do they feel about it? And one of the things that they found frustrating is no one asked me why I use cannabis. Mm-hmm. No one asked me what cannabis helps me with, and no one offered to help me stop cannabis or kind of treat what I've been using cannabis to manage. Mm-hmm. So like, same thing. Um, so I think that question is so important. And yes, we, we were in Cancun this summer and oh my gosh, you know, like, I feel like every time I go to Mexico, it's like, there's beer ads, I mean, everywhere. And like, everywhere. Really, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that's probably not just, you know, a, a Mexican phenomenon. I was reading a book called Alcohol Lied to Me um, about a, a gentleman in recovery. And we were up in Lake Tahoe and you can't drive more than 50 yards in Lake Tahoe without seeing another ad for beer or, or, or whatever. There's a, a Lake Tahoe vodka and there's, a, and they sponsor a bunch of stuff. So um, same thing, you know, here in Monterey, I mean, all the wineries. Um, yeah. I, I often joke um, that, you know, alcohol is socially acceptable. If I said, hey, Araceli, let's go wine tasting this weekend. You'd be like, oh, maybe that sounds okay. But if I said, Araceli, let's go heroin tasting this weekend. You'd be like, absolutely not. So it's just, it's funny mm-hmm. how we say drug A is okay and drug B is not. Um, I, do you find that in Latino culture, alcohol is even more kind of put up as, oh, it's okay. It's just just alcohol? Yes. Definitely. Uh, Alcohol is more accepted than any other drug. Um, And a lot of our patients, you know, do use other drugs, but um, they won't like come forward with it. They'll just Mm. say, oh, I'll I'll drink alcohol. But, you know, they do other things when, you know, we have that conversation one on one. And, you know, and that's that's okay. We're there to help. We're not there to judge. Well said. Beautiful segue. It's as it's as though. uh, um this was just kind of a, a perfect pivot point to go on to our, our next part of the what we're going to talk about. So first of all, I have to say, Araceli, I respect you enormously as somebody who can quickly make someone feel that they're not going to be judged and 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 kind of make that that connection of feeling trust. Um, when I first when you first started in the emergency department, I, I had no idea how you approach someone with substance use and make them trust you. And I just want to say I enormously respect the work that you do because I'm always amazed at how you can make someone's kind of guards come down and really connect with them. And, and that's what I want to pivot to is talking about building trust in in our patients, excuse me, building trust with our patients who use substance use. And, you know, I, as you know, you know, the outpatient versus the ER setting for substance use is very different, mm-hmm. right? When folks are in the office, they're in a program, they're not in crisis. In the ER is this really weird little area where like the substance use issues are, you know, on a scale from zero to 10, there are 15 and patients are totally deregulated and anxious and in withdrawal. So the ER is a really even harder place to build trust. So with that, Let's kind of bridge the two topics here. Um, how do you find being fluent in Spanish affects your relationship with patients with substance use who are primarily Spanish speaking when it comes to developing a trusting relationship? So I think it's important just to kind of um, go in there, not as like, oh, you did this drug, but going in there with just like an open mind, like, hey, how's it going? Like, how can I help you? Or are you seeking services today? And and they're like, no, absolutely not. That's totally okay. Just like, you know, one of my favorite concepts that I use in treatment and um, I use in the ER as well is like leaving the doors open. Like you don't want treatment right now, but okay, maybe in a week 
or a couple of weeks in a month in a year you'll you have my card you can reach out you're welcome to call me or text me like you don't you don't close the doors completely you you tell them we're here for you whenever you're ready come back well said. Do you find that you have a unique advantage with your Spanish-speaking patients in building that trust because of your ability to speak Spanish? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, that's one of the, the the key points. And I think that um, having uh, the team that we have in uh, uh, the Sun, we have uh, Austin and myself. And I think that's, that's what makes us a great um, team because we could like service everybody. Mm. Like, offer services to non-Spanish speaking patients and patients with other um, cultures. And I think that that's what makes us a great team. Yeah. So I'm, I want to pick your brain on this. So I was working last night. I have a pre-med student with me. She's Latina and Spanish speaking. And as you know, Araceli, we often have scribes with us in the emergency department. They're usually younger. Some of them, are, we, have, we have them from kind of multiple cultural heritages. I'm my Spanish, I think, is pretty good medically. It's not perfect. I occasionally have to have help translating if it's a really delicate issue. But for probably 90 to 95 percent of my encounters in Spanish, I just I do it myself. What's really interesting is when I go in the room with somebody who looks Latina, uh, Latinx, whether male, female, older, younger, my Spanish speaking patients look at them. So mm -hmm. this little pre-med student with me, she's wonderful. I, she works with me in the office, super smart. And, but you know, she has no medical training besides working in a medical office. When I go in the room with her, she's the doctor and I, I don't take any offense to that. They obviously want to gravitate to who they're most comfortable with, but mm -hmm. I'm curious with your Spanish speaking patients, do you get that same effect that they look to you as the doctor because you're the person that they trust the most? That's funny that you say that because, um, I remember like when I first started, one of our um, uniforms is to wear a white coat. And so I would always go into the into the rooms wearing a white coat and, you know, a casual um, outfit. And they would say, doctora, doctor. And I'm like, um, no, I'm the substance use navigator, but how can I help you? You know, so they would say, oh, it was you know, they would go on and on. And so it brings down those walls mm -hmm. when they see somebody that has the same, you know, background or they feel comfortable with like just opening up about anything. Um, they just do. And sometimes they're like, well, I didn't tell the doctor this, but I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. I had a patient that I went in there. I remember a couple of years back and she's like, well, I don't like how my meds make me feel. And I'm like, well, have you talked to your PCP about it? And she's like, no, I told him, but he didn't understand me. And so I remember like getting on the phone with her and we're calling like the clinic and we, it, it took us a while to get a call back, but I remember we did got a call back and we were able to um, have her PCP sent out a referral to behavioral health so she could get her meds adjusted because mm. it didn't, um, it didn't, she didn't like how it made her feel. And so she, I remember she called me back and she's like, Muchisimas gracias. Thank you so much, Araceli. And I'm like, you know, we're here to help. Anything that we can do, we're here to help. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I mean, I, I, I actually, you know, my goal when I come to work is that the patients get what they need. They're treated with respect. 
I mean, I, 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 I have no offense at all when I walk in and I basically get treated like I'm the scribe because I need to get their information. <laughs> I, I need to examine them. You know, as long as I feel like somebody's listening to them, I'm happy with that. Yeah. So um, I, I totally agree that, you know, it's almost like um, some of my patients really connect with their nurse and the doctor's kind of superfluous. And for the most part, you and I know that nurses put in the IVs and, you know, they're transporting patients and they're helping get them onto the gurney for CT scans. I mean, the nurses really run healthcare. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like as long as someone on their team and in, a, in an ideal world, everyone on their team is somebody that they feel that, you know, is, is, a, is, uh, is they can trust and, and that uh, helps them get better. Um, you know, Arsali, what I mentioned, I, I enormously respect the work that you do for your ability to to build trust with patients. G give me your secrets. How do you do it? How do you walk into a room cold and kind of develop that trusting relationship with someone? And, and I realize you can't in every circumstance, but the ones where you walked in and you got a wall and by the end of the visit, you felt like, okay, I've, I've got a lane here that I can communicate with this person. Talk me through how you did that. I think it's, it's just like keeping in mind that, you know, that you're just going in to see a person with that is struggling with a medical condition. And, it, it you know, like putting all those judgments aside and just walking in there and meeting that person. Like I had a young girl on, um, I believe, on Thursday and, you know, my coworker went to see her and she did, she didn't want to talk to him. And so I went to see her the next day. And, and I'm like, hi, how's it going? I'm Araceli. And she's like, just like doing the shoulder thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, what's going on? What brought you in? And so just kind of like talking to her, like as a person. And then she's like, I don't know. Like, and then I asked her, okay, um, so you're here. Um, who brought you? And she's like, oh, the ambulance I was drinking. And I'm like, okay, um, so how can I help? She's like, she kept doing that. And then, so I kind of like, I think it's important to self disclose when it's appropriate and when it's beneficial for the patient. So sharing your experience or something that you struggle with, um, like at the same time as like at her age, I remember like struggling with similar things. Um, she was Latina. And um, and I remember like struggling with similar things, and I and and it was like a deja vu, like I was seeing myself in mm -hmm. her, like I was having like some kind of camera transference, and I was like, you know, when I was when I was your age, I did struggle with certain things, and you know, and I and I wanted to like do all these things, and I acted out, and you know, and I I get it, it's hard being a teen at this age, and you know, feeling misunderstood. And I just kind of share a little bit about myself. And you can see in her eyes, like the walls coming down, right? And so she's like, yeah. And then she shared a little bit about herself and her struggles. And, and I'm like, you know, we all have problems. We all have struggles, you know, but that's what makes you, you. That's what makes you unique. All of this is just an experience. You're going to grow up and I learned from that experience. So just kind of educating our youth that not because of the choices they made today is who they're going to be tomorrow. Like, yes, it's part of the learning process, but it's also part of life. 
we all struggle. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And sometimes just having like that person to bounce off ideas goes a long way. So I, like one of my favorite um, uh, patients to work with is youth, because I think that we can do so much for the youth. And it just like, when there's a youth, I'm like, oh, I'm going, I'm going in. It's, I, I just love them. Like I just, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, I love to help anybody, but youth, it's like, if I had to go into that field, I would pick the youth because you can, you can help them. You can guide them and redirect them, but you, you can do that for any of the patients. But I feel like we can do intervention more in youth before they get, um, more into like the addiction phase um but that's that's kind of how I do it but everybody's unique like there's not a secret there's not a uh, formula it's like you just go in there and you just meet them where they are and just say I'm just here to help how can I help and if they say I don't want any help how how about I call you next week or in a couple of days and they'll say, yeah, or they'll say no. Um, but it's just leaving the doors open, letting them know that there is there is a light on the other side of the tunnel. Well said. Yeah, <clears throat> having been doing addiction medicine um, more formally now since February, it, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the youth for me are challenging because they need a lot of support. Um, I, and you know, in, in the office, it's me and our peer support specialist and really trying to get them connected to services. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the young people are such an incredible opportunity. Uh, the analogy is often made to cancer. If you do a screening and you find a little polyp and you cut it out, it's gone. As opposed to if you wait 10 years and it becomes a cancer that spreads everywhere, it's almost impossible to treat. So I love that thought of really focusing on the youth as a good, um, as a really um, important patient population for us to work with. Um, I think for me, the other thing that I think of that I think you do implicitly but didn't necessarily mention is just respect. Um, making eye contact with people, making them feel sometimes, forgive me, like a human. I mean, some of our patients thank us for shaking their hands, making eye contact. Um, I think respect is such a core part of, of building uh, a trusting relationship. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to ask kind of a, a difficult question uh, for, I think for, for both of us, we have loads of examples of when this happens, but when you've made a connection with a patient with substance use, what frustrations do they share with you about their healthcare providers? And what can we learn as healthcare providers from that? Um, I can think of loads of things I can share about this, but I want to hear what, what your experience has been. I think some of the patients uh, tell me that they feel judged, like um, even like coming into the room, they feel like maybe the way they look. Um, some some of our patients have tattoos, so the way they look, the way well, the, the substance they use, oh, well, why is he here? Or, or why is this like person here? Um, the, so they, they feel like they get treated differently than that patient that comes in for a um, insulin refill or a inhaler refill. So they feel like they have that judgment put on them, like prior to come, prior from the provider coming into the room. Um, 
and you know, and it's real. I mean, it, it's it's you know, it's it's important. I think that to see the person first, you know, the person struggling with a condition, because um, a lot of the patients, you know, as a child or even young youth, like if you ask them, they're not going to tell you like they want to be a person with substance use dependence or, or a person that uses alcohol. Like they, that's not what they want to do. Sometimes they fall into those categories because they're dealing with depression, they're dealing with anxiety, um, they're dealing with grief. Like there's other underlying causes or things that makes them drink, especially in the Latino community. Like we mentioned, like yeah. they deal with anxiety, they deal with depression, like um, they lose a girlfriend, they lose their wife. And, and that's a way of them coping or like bottling up those feelings so they won't they so they can continue moving forward without having to deal with the pain. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think feeling in, inherently judged is what my patients are most frustrated and kind of emotionally wounded by. Is they're like, hey, I went to the hospital and they treated me like dirt. Like, why didn't anyone help me? Um, I, I think the other thing is, unfortunately, you know, our, our healthcare providers get very little education about addiction. So I've said this a, a number of times. So my colleague, Dr. Close, and I, 15 years of medical education between the two of us at UCLA and Stanford. And we got one hour of uh, education on addiction between the two of us. And it was on gambling addiction. Mm. We learned, I think as uh, particularly in the ER, we're taught, this is how you manage alcoholic liver disease. This is how you manage COPD from smoking. This is how you manage endocarditis from injection drug use, but they never teach you how to manage the, the addiction uh, that leads to the other problem. And so it's almost like we, 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 we over-medicalize these patients rather than seeing them as somebody who has a substance use disorder and a medical condition. We just see the medical condition. Um, and then I guess almost people feel kind of under-equipped to be able to actually address the substance use. I mean, um, truly, I, I was talking about this the other day. The, the art on my podcast uh, is painted by a patient of mine named Paul. I didn't know anything about addiction when I first met him as my patient and he was in recovery from opiates and he was like, no opiates, doctor. I'm in recovery. It was like, oh, okay, um, sure. So I took care of the infection in his arm and I was like, I, I don't know anything about addiction. Like if I take you to coffee, will you teach me? <laughs> yeah. And that's really where it started for me. And so um, I, I think, you know, you said it really well that people feel judged for how they look or what they use. And, and that really undercuts them trusting their, their healthcare providers. I think it's also important for like the ER docs to kind of, um, and I know that we're in the ER and it's everything is like fast paced, fast paced, but I think it's important to take like that minute to listen to the patient mm -hmm. and like, you know, answer like questions that they have, because I feel like in the ER, um, we we see the patient, but then we're like a quick fix, right? It's like a bandaid to the womb, like figuratively speaking. But if we take that, like that minute to just understand why they use, maybe we can have that like chance to get this person connected to services. Yeah. Well, it comes back to what we were saying earlier that a lot of times with our addiction patients, uh, no one asks them what they're using the substance mm -hmm. for. Yeah. Let's, let's segue into our next question. Cause I think there's, a little bit that we can unpack there with this question of why do you use? How do you approach connecting with patients in the emergency department who are using substances 
but are not open to treatment? Well, we, we provide them information. Uh, we give them resources. Um, and, you know, we address any concerns. They want to talk about like other situations that they're having. Like um, I had a patient that did not want to do nothing to do with addiction services, like a separation, and that's what he was drinking. And I'm like, okay, perfect. Let's get you hooked up to some counseling services. And sometimes uh, patients find recovery through other avenues, like not necessarily through um, substance use treatment, but sometimes going to counseling that they can start like working on like that uh, part of themselves. And then that will lead them to the counseling services. So um, the recovery is different for everyone. Like there's not a like, like a cookie cutter uh, way that a patient should be doing recovery. Some patients find recovery going to AA. Some patients find recovery like going to counseling. Some patients find recovery like talking to other people about their problems because they never have talked about it. So the, there's there's uh, definitely different ways um, that patients find find themselves and find that help that they need. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, I I think what I've learned to do, even in the last few weeks to months after doing some more research on this, is when patients kind of feel like they're not ready or they're putting up barriers, I think I try to just get to know them better and say, again, tell me why you're using, how does it help you? What can I help you with to help that? Um with cannabis, I've had a couple of folks that I've really spent a lot of time working with. And yeah, it's just a lot of it's very poorly managed anxiety and getting connected to counseling. Um, one of my patients mm -hmm. has horrible PTSD from her job. And a lot of getting her into residential has been just getting her to kind of admit that there's a lot of mm -hmm. emotional trauma. And I just got her a new PCP and, and, and the PCP is getting her into psychology and counseling. I'm like, yes, this is what we needed. I mean, it's almost like what I get is, mm -hmm. well, I don't have an alcohol problem. I have a job problem, right? It's like, it's not right. me, it's my mm -hmm. job. If it weren't the job, I wouldn't do it. So again, mm -hmm. just trying to understand, I think if we could say anything about when someone's resistant, take the time, get to know them better, dig deeper. And I think you may find that they're they're willing to at least help, excuse me, they're at least willing to get help in some way. I think just leaving the doors open, like I mentioned yeah. before, and um, eventually they'll move from like the stages of change from like, uh, preparation to action, you know, it, they're in different places. Patients, like, they're in different places. So you just have to, like, walk with them as they move forward to into recovery. Yeah, well said. Um, so, kind of going a different direction here, you know. So, you know, in the emergency department, we have kind of this specific chunk of time that people are with us. But I know from your work that you'll follow people for months, how do you go about building a, a longer uh, term trusting relationship that like they know that if they have a lapse, they can call you? How, how do you how do you make that connection last longer? I normally uh, check in with them by text, um, phone calls, emails. Um, and then some of some of my patients actually stop by the ER just to really? say hi. Like I'm doing great. Like, <laughs> That's so cool. Um, I Yeah. 
And uh, a few of my patients, I um, have connections with their parents, their moms, mainly. Uh -huh. I have a group of moms. And so they send me pictures of their kids doing great. Like, um, I remember this, uh, one of my patients, uh, you know, was struggling with opiates. Like, you know, he was really skinny and, you know, and then she sent me a picture of this, of her son. And he was in a, in a tuxedo and he was preaching and sharing his story, like going from church to church, talking about his recovery and how he struggled for two years. It took us two years to get wow. this patient into program. Cool. And he stayed in program. And it, it, I just feel like a super proud mom when they call me or when they text me or when I get those pictures. And I'm like, this is a win. Like, yeah. this is the reason why I wake up every morning and come to work. So it sounds like it's some of it's just being consistent is being there constantly letting them know that you're, you're ready yes. for, if they are just, again, kind of consistency mm -hmm. and contact. Yes, exactly. It's like treating them like family, like just checking in. Hey, how's it going? Like, I haven't <laughs> heard from you. Like, are you still there? Like you yeah. change your number. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So yeah, they're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. at I'm like, okay. Yeah, a lot of my patients in the clinic we see every week, and then our peer support specialist reaches out every week. It's that consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Araceli, first of all, you do awesome work. Thank you for all the incredible stuff that you do. Um, just such an incredible person to have in our emergency department in, and in our community. Um, thank you for taking the time to share your work and, and teaching us. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to share about the work that you do or what you've learned as you've gone through your career? Um, I think it's like, again, it's important to meet the patient where they are. It's important to treat them as person first, um, a person with a medical condition. And like, I just want to like let anybody know that is listening out there that if you are struggling with a substance use if you um want help um just come come on by the er we're there um <laughs> i'm there monday through friday in the mornings and my co-workers there in the afternoons um if you don't want to go to your pcp um you know you could always come to the er and we can guide you um to what to do um and also, I just want to let the Hispanic community know that um, si tiene un problema con su consumo de alcohol o dependencia de sustancias, háblenos. Um, vengan a buscarnos. Yo trabajo lunes a viernes en la mañana. Mi, uh, uh, mi, mi otro compañero trabaja en la tarde. So, si usted no sabe dónde empezar, o donde acudir, venga al Departamento de Emergencias en CHOM y pregunte por Araceli o por mi uh, compañero Austin. Thank you, Dr. Grover. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just, just for the audience, we're really blessed in this part of California. So we're in the Central Coast. Uh, Monterey is the county that we're in to the north of Santa Cruz to the east of San Benito. I believe there are seven emergency departments and all seven of them have someone like Araceli who is a substance use navigator. So if you're in the central coast of California, we're in a good place. Um, I can't say that for every emergency department, but it definitely needs to be that way. All right. Well, that is the end of this interview and this podcast episode. That is a wrap. 
Kudos to Araceli for the amazing work that she does and the awesome information that she gave us here today. To our listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you found this topic helpful. Please share it with friends and colleagues that you think also might find this topic helpful. And as always, don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.